Welcome, everyone, to this edition of the Not-So-Common Podcast. My name is Pat Contry, and my guest this week is Ben Heckendorn. He is a big-time game console modder. He has actually has a book detailing this called Hacking Video Game Consoles, but he is best known for the Ben Heck Show on YouTube, and he also has a podcast. Ben, how's it going? I'm doing all right. Got kind of a crick in my shoulder, but other than that, I'm fine. You, you, you even lift in too many uh, pinball machines and arcade cabinets? <laughs> oh, no. I always get someone else to do that for me. Oh, okay. I don't know. I must have woke up wrong or something. An impingement, I think it's called sometimes in, <laughs> in the medical terms. I know that because I threw my shoulder out like three four months ago. Got to be careful. So, Ben, you, you uh, have been modding consoles for a long, long time. Uh, yes, yeah, since 2000. Since 2000, mixing your love of, uh, I guess, old style or retro video games with tinkering with electronics, modding, and hacking. So how did you get started with that? Yeah, I was into electronics when I was a kid. Uh, I had one of those uh, Radio Shack uh, electronics kits when I was like seven. I'm so jealous. I, I was going to ask you if you had one of those. <laughs> well, I had a very inexpensive one. It was like the solar uh, kit. It only had like maybe like 20 experiments. Some of my richer friends had the, you know, 150 in one units, but whatever. (laughs) It was fun. Uh, I was really into, you know, electronics when I was, you know, six, seven, eight, nine. Uh, But then I got into, like, computers, like, when I was about 10 or 11. And I kind of got away from electronics for quite a while, which is kind of, I kind of regret that because I think I I would be a lot better at it if I would have kept up. Um, but then, yeah, later in life, when I was like 24 or something, I kind of got back into electronics because I was like, I would like to do something with the classic games like the uh, Atari 2600, which was really a really hot collector item in, uh, in what, 2000? I'd say, yeah, 90s, the Atari 2600 was the retro game console. That's when yeah. I, you, you could say that retro game collecting really started with old, uh, older Atari 2600 people that wanted want to go back and play at. Yeah. It was the first generation, and now you know, we've gone up to like the Super Nintendo. So that's what you grew up with, though? You grew, you grew up with the, the, the VCS? Uh, I didn't have one when I was a kid, actually. <laughs> a lot of my cousins did, and I would play theirs. But then I, I had an Atari computer, because Atari had computers, and Atari 800. And I actually still have it. It's right next to me, because last weekend I fixed it up. So that's what I actually really cut my teeth on. And I got that, actually got that 30 years ago this month. That's why last weekend I fixed it up and uh, hooked it up to a, a new TV and have it on my desk right next to me. Very nice. What what would you say your your influences were in terms of wanting to get into, I guess, technology, studying it, uh, tinkering? Did you have like a parent that pushed you into it? Um, was it, yeah, like maybe a teacher in grade school that made you interested in science? What would you say really pushed you? Uh, none, none of the above. I had no influences or help whatsoever, unfortunately. <laughs> but I still struggled through and. I don't know. I just found it interesting, you know, that, you know, we can use electricity to make things happen. I think part of it was because I did like video games and I liked robots and transformers and stompers. And I was always taking my toys apart to try to figure out how they worked. I think that's kind of what influenced me. Like, like with video games, like, you know, I liked video games. I liked modding things. I liked uh, graphic arts. I was a graphic artist when I made my first uh, console mods. And I'm like, well, I could use these things and put them together to make kind of a neat homage to the old systems. And I guess so, yeah, like those di- different disciplines and how they interact is that's what I found interesting, and that's how everything linked together for me. 
I think it's I think it's interesting that when you look at a period like the eighties in general, um, when computers started to become available to the mass market, mm-hmm. and at the same time, I would call almost like the golden age of cartoons and children's animation, there really was this intersection of technology, computers being something hot and new, with and then the influence on children's entertainment uh, at the time. I mean, yeah, I remember- you know. I, I, I programmed a DuckTales game in BASIC on my Atari before the Capcom game came out, like in 88. <laughs> I probably still have it on a disc someplace. Yeah, it's like you were you were in a helicopter. I think you were like the Beagle Boys, and you were trying to drop bombs on Scrooge McDuck while he was swimming in the money. Look at you being so modest. You, like, like you, you, you played this game last week. You know how it goes. you got to put that on YouTube. <laughs> uh, I probably have the disc someplace. I'd have to dump it using a cable, but... But yeah, I mean, there's a perfect example of what you just said. Oh, sure. Um, I mean, I even remember, uh, speaking of Radio Shack, they had a comic book series called WizKids, uh, for example, in order to teach children about computers and get them more familiar with it. And yeah, every cartoon you'd see, whether it's Transformers, they had their big computer set up. Even G.I. Joe and the Command Center had their big computer set up. Uh, It's sort of, I guess, uh, you can say encultured that generation of children into technology that probably didn't exist as much in the 70s even. Well, exactly. Computers, like if you, if you think about the 80s as far as nostalgia or what you remember from it, computers really coming into their own, at least in the mass market, was a major part of that decade indeed because they became affordable for people even though by today's standards they were still astronomically expensive. Oh, nice. Uh, and I just, I just Wikipedia, WizKids was also a TV show that was on CBS, which I didn't even know that, from 83 yeah, I'm not, to... I'm not familiar with that one. To 84. Only 18 episodes is probably why. Uh, yeah, so... I was too busy watching A-Team, I'm sure, at that time. The A-Team was always funny to me, because even as a kid, I was like, how come no one's getting shot? Yeah, they just, the- they, just, they just shoot at the ground the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> it's, like, it's almost like a, it's a tease when you're a kid. Like, G.I. Joe... Um, they wouldn't get shot as well, but people got hurt on G.I. Joe. And actually, as an aside, the creators of the show made it a point that a character would get hurt to show that you know war and violence does has an impact, that it's not totally right. without without uh, casualty. Yeah, it was usually usually the impression of violence, if anything. But, but it worked. Yeah, it worked. So, so you start getting into, you said around 2000, you start getting into modding consoles and systems. Yep. And, and, you, and you've done a ton since then. Uh, I'm looking yeah, at Yeah, it just page. started out as like a one-time project that I thought would be fun. And 17 years later. <laughs> and, and, then, and now this is what you're, at least to the world, known primarily for. Uh, did you did you ever think that that would be something looking you know back like wow I think in twenty years people will, will want to come watch me to to repair a Nintendo PlayStation prototype or do a, a an Xbox three sixty mod is that sort of strange to you or have you kind of accepted that this is what you're known well, for now I've learned in life that there's where you think you're going and where you end up going mm-hmm. and I guess the magic is uh, you never know but I mean it's it's worked out pretty well I mean. I'm doing better now than if I would have continued to be a graphic artist. So even though it might be a weird path, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad one. But no, when I started, yeah, I was just like, oh, I'm going to make this. I I think it'd be cool to make a portable Atari 2600. I'm just going to do it. And then I made like a GeoCities page, and then I was just shocked (laughs) at how interested people were. Because at that time, 
Um, I don't think ret- that was. I think that was really early when retro gaming started out, like ninety nine, two thousand. So I was unaware of the market or the desire or the nostalgia. Well, that's when I started collecting. Was was late nineties? I'd say about ninety eight is when I started collecting NES games. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, like I said previously, I think you can really trace retro game collecting probably back to the early 90s uh, with guys getting back into the Atari. Um, then once you hit the mid to late 90s, you have, okay, now it's the NES. Because it's usually about 10 to 15 years after a console's out, people want to go back and start looking for those games again. Um, and that's, I'd say, I would say closer to 20, but yeah. Sure. Uh, but at least for the NES, that's what uh, it was my sort of experience and people I knew was like, okay, late 90s, you know, we're a little bit, you know, now we're in college. Emulators are, are now a thing. Uh, you have this. Oh thing yeah, called- like Nesticle was like what ninety seven. Uh, uh, actually, we, famous, we have famous I, emulator. Yeah, we just did on the podcast. We did a twentieth anniversary salute to Nesticle about a month ago. But then you had something called the World Wide Web that got popular, uh, yes. <laughs> and then you had websites like TSR's NES Archive go out there, which is still up there. Has been updated, you know, since probably two thousand. But a place to store and collect all the NES knowledge you knew and didn't know at the time. And so I think this sort of a uh, this confluence of events helped uh, grow the retro video game scene. That it probably would not have grown to that extent if there ever hadn't been for the internet. Right. It definitely connected people together. That's an obvious thing to say about the internet. But well, like as I mentioned in my case, like uh, you know, I, I had my friends and like they were into whatever, and you know, we you know we we most talk about like. We talked about video games, but never really outside of that. And then once, yeah, once I had a website on the internet, I was just completely shocked at how many people were interested in, like, retro game collecting. And again, all thanks to the internet, definitely. So in terms of the modding scene that you obviously have a relationship with, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, you could say that, not that the, the retro game scene has been dominated Excuse me. The modding scene has been dominated by retro video games. Obviously, people mod other things for various reasons. Would you say that though the the influence of retro video games has helped the modding scene uh, in terms of more exposure, people getting more interested in learning how to tinker, how to solder, you know, learning what a microchip is. Um. So you're talking about retro modding. I'm just talking about the scene in general and how retro okay. games have sort of been thrust into it. Right. Well, as I mentioned. Uh, People, video games are a good gateway drug. Like, people like myself, they like video games, and they see that they can learn electronics through the portal of video games. And that actually, that's a good jumping off point. Like, if I'm trying to, like, wire some sort of, like, you know, inductive load sensors, like, that's not interesting. Like, I don't have a real-world example of that. But if I can use electronics to make a Nintendo do something cool or uh, spiff up my Genesis, then it does have a real-world example, and that gives me the impetus to want to continue. And I, that, that's how it worked for me, and I would imagine it was for other other people, too, because everyone loves video games. Sure. And, and so and, and to that point, I guess that's what makes it more entertaining for people who may not know what you're actually doing, the ins and outs of, but at least can follow along your path while you're modding these consoles or, the, or trying to repair these systems. We, de- we definitely see on our show, uh, anytime something involves video games, we have, it's like, four times the views at least because YouTube only cares about video games basically. <laughs> That's it. That's all they care about. <laughs> yeah, we've had that conversation a lot and I'm like, well, I watch a lot. I've watched more YouTube than Netflix or Amazon or anything. I'm like, let me tell you. All YouTube cares about is video games. It's like it's like we had that uh, that episode where we fixed up that PlayStation prototype and that got like 700,000 views in like a few days. It's like that's 
insane for our show. Yeah, I'm just looking at like your Nintendo Switch teardown from two months ago, 209,000 uh, views, and then something. I'm trying to see something that's maybe more generic and, and try to compare the views. And oh yeah, yeah it's, it's there's definitely a difference. There's definitely a difference. Like we've we've been talking about uh, ways to take the channel or the show forward um, in the future, where I probably will take a break from it <laughs> to. Uh, you know, to be vague, and uh, it's like, well, you know what, guys, video games. <laughs> yeah, that's like, that's like my parting, my parting words. But I like video games, but uh, I don't know. Well, yeah. you mentioned are you are you you're, you're not getting. You know, well, I'm surprised you said about potentially stepping away. Is that is that something you're actually thinking about? Yes, probably in the future. Yeah. Are, are you burnt out from it, or you, or you want more op- different opportunities out there? Well, if you think about our show, we've been building custom things and building examples. We do a episode. We do fifty-two episodes a year, and like for holidays, we just double up episodes. So it's kind of like several years of two-week deadlines. And yeah, I think you know there will be a point where I'll I'm going to be switching to other things. Interesting. Will it be like Mythbusters, where you get a secondary team, maybe that that does the, <laughs> the off weeks? That you know, that could be a possibility. Maybe you just lighten your load a little bit, you know? Yeah, because if you look at Mythbusters, like once they let the younger people go, everyone everyone got mad. So like the sidekicks, you know, become almost as popular as the hosts. Like on our show, like everyone loves Felix. So yeah, I don't know. I guess we'll have to see. I probably shouldn't talk about that too much. I don't know. I don't know if that's actually public knowledge yet. But, uh, well, it might be unless you want me to cut it, but. Um... I think yeah, I think I, fine. I, Just leave. I I think I think when people are afraid of people, I think uh, at least with online entertainment, they like what they like and they're afraid of change. Oh, definitely. And not that they can't get used to it, but there's always sort of a shock, a sort of a shock phase where it's like people might get uh, antsy or they might bleed off. Uh, but you might get new people that come in. So I'm not saying you should do a B team on the Ben Heck show. But I'm saying if you did, at first you might get people to say, "Oh, I don't like this. Where's Ben?" But I think eventually they would get used to it if if that becomes a new normal. Um, just as a, just as me throwing that out there. Uh, but uh, the YouTube world is sort of precarious and strange anyway, as I've seen, as you've seen, since you've been on for a while, and so have I. Yeah, it's <laughs> video. It's all about video games, and not just not just video games. Uh... I mean, you you probably came you probably discussed this when you're talking to Mark, but it definitely has to be it has to be brand new video games, or if it is old, it has to be Nintendo. That's basically all people have patience for. Um, there, there's a there's definitely more niche topics. If I did a video on the Microvision, it probably would not get the same views as even the TurboGrafx-16 or Sega Genesis. There's definitely tiers uh, of sort of interest when it comes to retro video games. Obviously, Nintendo is still you know, the, the mo- you can say the most popular video game company overall just for its franchises. And because of that, all older Nintendo consoles and IPs will still garner interest. There's a bigger crossover between that and, say, older, you know, Sega Master System titles. Because today, not really many people are playing those or any iterations of those still. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, yeah, you can definitely see that if you look at, like, the PlayStation 1. Uh, back in the 90s, the PlayStation 1 outsold the N64 4 to 1. But does anyone care about the PlayStation One anymore? But everyone's nostalgic for the N sixty four. So yeah, it's 
it's it's quite interesting. You're like the Sega Genesis seems like almost forgotten, but I mean it was like toe to toe with the Super Nintendo. Like when the Sega Genesis came out, that's all I played because I was like a teenager. So I'm like, oh cool, it's got sports games, it's got fast games, it's got shooters, it's got arcade you know? games, arcade yeah, games, yeah. Course, you know. Um, I think how it, it I think that right now we're 20 years after the release of the PlayStation, and it might become with some of these consoles that are not Nintendo consoles that people will latch on to, um, say, certain franchises or certain games that they like. So maybe in 30 years from now, people will still finally remember the Crash Bandicoot series, but not the the PlayStation itself will not be venerated the same way the NES is venerated or even the Super Nintendo. Or even, or even the, no, the Sega Genesis is venerated to some degree, but I, it, it might become that way. Be, be, I mean, that's just the nature, I think, uh, nowadays of software and games in general, where since now the games are ubiquitous, they're across multi-consoles and PC, that there'll be less of attachment to individual platforms, say, 20 or 30 years from now. Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, yeah, I, I would agree with that point. Although, you know, they say that console exclusivity doesn't matter anymore, but then why is the PlayStation completely thrashing the Xbox One? I mean, it must matter somewhat. Well, a lot of that was marketing and and Microsoft shooting itself in the foot with the Xbox One with the DRM. Remember the beginning? The DRM. Oh, yeah. And and having it where, oh, no, we're not really going to have used game support on console. And that really upset a lot of people. Obviously, they reversed course, but that really pissed off a lot of people that were scared of that. Right. Um, Personally, I think Sony would have done the same thing, but Microsoft uh, crossed that line first, and Sony was able to see the reaction, and they were able to change course (laughs) in time. Why wouldn't wouldn't they? No developers, game companies, everyone hates used game sales. Uh, And they are... They will destroy that market pretty soon uh, because everything will be all digital in the future. But uh, Ooh, that's a conversation we can have. I always argue against that. We'll never get to a hundred percent digital future. It might become uh, seventy or eighty percent. But <laughs> oh, I definitely. I did a whole video on that. A uh, twenty-minute video on that. <laughs> we can talk about it. Why do you think that uh, you'll, we'll have an all digital future? I'm going to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, because it just seems obvious to me. Uh, I mean, I, this, like the Switch, um, you know, and I'm, I'm a pretty well-known, uh, what's the right word, critic of Nintendo. And I think the Switch just uses physical media to make retailers happy and to allow Nintendo to manufacture the cartridges as a profit center, which is what they did in the old days. Like every Nintendo cartridge that was sold. When I say Nintendo, I mean Nintendo, right? I mean, I have to explain that to some people sometimes. Uh You know, Nintendo manufactured third-party cartridges. So if Konami wanted a Contra... Nintendo's like, okay, here's your seal of approval, which is really the licensing seal, and we will manufacture your Contra cartridges for you. So the cartridge manufacturing was a profit center for Nintendo, which I think is why they held on to cartridges longer than they should have. And now that's back with the Switch. But it's also good for retailers, because if retailers are just selling a digital-only product, like an iPad, uh, they actually include a bigger cut for the retailers on things like that, because the retailers have a lot less ancillary things to sell with it. But with the Switch, you know, they can sell Switch games on cartridges, and that makes retailers happy. Now, granted, you know, the other consoles also have disc-based media, but I don't know. I just really don't think it's going to last that much longer because a lot of people say, oh, what if you don't have an internet connection? You know, what if your internet connection sucks? And I I don't know. I think if you, if you look at, like, America, and they're like, well, 27% of Americans don't have high-speed internet, and it's like, yeah, and 27% of Americans are old people. So, yeah, I'd really, yeah, I would say like a company like GameStop has maybe five years. 
Oh, that's a whole different conversation to me because I think uh, GameStop obviously they they want the physical media because it, they make all their profit on used games. They mm-hmm. make they make very little to nothing on console sales, which is why they have to bundle a Switch with five six other games and a, and a strategy guide you don't want. They right. they, refu- they refuse to sell the Switch by itself online when they have the stock, uh, and also the fact that they don't make that much on new games. Uh, stores usually don't. It's always on the peripherals. Um, but but on the used games, oh boy, they're making a tons of profit on used games. Oh hell yeah! But I'm going to go back to your point about um, you know people in the U.S. not having good internet. I would say, what about developing nations? What about a country like India, which has well over a billion people? That Nintendo might be looking at it. Well, this is, could be a very big market for us, maybe a few years down the line. Uh, and they might are made those it, large yeah. markets for consoles right now? Like China just only just recently got Western consoles. But do you see the point, though, is that you have a ton of people out there. Oh, yeah, I that definitely you could do. definitely get market share there in the future, and their internet might be 20 years behind us and catching up, or 15 years. Right. So I, that, that, for, one of the, for that reason alone, I think physical media is going to be around here longer than, than expected. Uh, and plus, you are, you are going to face, if, if Nintendo came out tomorrow, or if, if Xbox tried again to say, we are done with having used games be available on our system, you're going to have the same backlash that you had when they announced it for the Xbox One a few years ago. I don't think it's going to be that much different. Someone's going to take a huge hit be, being a martyr and trying to attempt that, and I think it's going to be very detrimental to whatever console size to do that. And yet, people love Steam. But PC is always a different market, though, versus consoles, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's, it's a growing market. I mean, PC gaming is doing better than ever now. There hasn't, but there hasn't been used PC sales since the early 2000s when they started packing in uh, codes to actually uh, install and run the games. So at that point, it was basically DRM'd and dead already. Uh, so I think that's a different market, at least in my eyes. Oh, so yeah, basically- I, bought, I bought the Titanfall boxed copy. Titanfall 2 boxed copy, because Amazon had it on sale for 40 bucks, And it's just a plastic box with a piece of paper inside of it with an origin code. Sure. So I always tell people, if you're collecting big box PC games, uh, when you go to the swap meet, anything after, I'd say, 98, 99, 2000, buy it because it's a box. You won't be able to play that game because that code inside has been activated. Uh, so <laughs> that's just the truth of it. Uh, uh- it I don't think th- codes instead of discs. That's I would say that was more like a 2010 and on. I mean, well, I, I mean codes. Of- I, I'm, ben, I mean they would come with a CD, but oh, they also install have, codes. They okay, have an install right. code. So when I when I, so when I bought Unreal Tournament 2004, I was really buying the the install code for it because I could download the game off the website, but I couldn't play it. Well, yeah, that's people- what I mean. What people often fail to realize with video games is that you're not buying the video game. You're buying a license to play yes. it in your home. And in the past, that license was attached to a physical cartridge because that was the best way of delivering it. Like Something that people often forget about with the 80s is that disk drives were very expensive. Like your, di- your disk drive would cost as much as your Apple computer or your Commodore 64. So at that time, it was actually cheaper to distribute games on cartridges. And then as time went on, it became cheaper to distribute games on disk. But you, you know what I'm saying? Like the, the method of delivery has changed over the years. And I think, yes, it, it will be a challenge in countries that have poor internet. However... I mean, who knows? Well, they still sell the Sega Master System in Brazil, for, for an example. Yes. So, yes, things definitely. Uh, yeah, there's, they, they uh, trickle down. You know, like you'll have like maybe a generation older, and uh, developing countries will be like, "Oh, this is great." But I mean, that will change too. I mean, like uh, like with movies. I think once the uh, 
people in China start buying nice TVs and can afford nice TVs for their homes, that uh, ancillary theatrical market in China will probably dry up too, just like it has here. So it it will it does eventually change. It just takes it just takes time. Well, people are still going to the theaters in large numbers in the U.S. It's not like it, 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 the profits might be down, but there's still a lot of profit. I think it's the postage stamp thing where nobody buys postage stamps, so they have to raise the price of the postage stamp, and then that causes more people to not buy the postage stamp. Okay, think about it this way. Think about it this way. Like airplanes. Airplanes, they keep on putting smaller and smaller seats into airplanes so they can cram more people in for each flight. Movie theaters are doing the opposite. They're taking existing theaters and putting in bigger, nicer seats because they want to improve the experience for the fewer people that are going. If attendance of theaters was actually going up, they would be making smaller seats, not bigger ones. But instead, they're having to improve the experience to, like, lure people into the theater. So this is what I have. I'm going to bring up the yearly box office off box office mojo. I'm prepared here, Ben. Um, 2012, uh, it was almost $3.8 billion. 2013, mm-hmm. it, it, it plummeted in 2013 to $3.35 3. Then it went up to 3. Point, it stayed at $3.5 billion, went up in 2015 to $3.7. Is, that, up, is that for the summer? This or? is yearly. Uh, yearly. Year to date. I think it would be higher than that. Year, oh, this is year-to-date comparison, I guess. Oh, up to May 12th. Okay. This is the year-to-date comparison. Yeah, this I was going to say, the movie industry right. makes more than that. Year, all right, year-to-year. Here we go. 2011, 10.1. 2012, 10.8. 2013, 10.9. 2014, 10.3. 2015, it jumps to 11.1. And uh, in 2016, it, it went up a little bit to 11.3. So in terms of the gross, it's actually gone up uh, right. compared to last year. You're saying, though, it's less ticket sales versus just jacking the prices by percentile points. I was looking at, I was thinking about going to Guardians of the Galaxy this afternoon, and a matinee now is 13.50, And that's ridiculous. The, the price of movie tickets has gone up, I would say, at like three times the rate of inflation since like basically Avatar. So yes, the grosses keep going up, but fewer and fewer people are going every year. And right now, Hollywood is being saved by overseas, which has been on fire. Basically, as the American market went down, a lot of it was because of the recession, the overseas market has gone up, but I think that will plateau as well. I guess we kind of got off subject from the Brazil Sega <laughs> Master System there. Well, I think I think the conversation goes back to there's different markets, and I think one may Definitely. not supplant the other necessarily, but it, it's a guarantee that, for example, that, well, if you say even if ticket sales are down in the U.S., they're still profitable, and they're, they can be buoyed by other regions like China is only, the only reason how Warcraft turned even a small profit. If it wasn't for China, it would have been one of the biggest bombs ever. And, the reason, and one of the reasons why they're still thinking about a Warcraft sequel, because by the U.S. ticket sales would not be justification at all. But you add in China, then we, we can have something to play with. And that's what goes back to China is a new market for movies, relatively so. Right. What if then you crack, again, a, a, a huge market like India, which now is the highest population you know, in the world? That's a whole group of people now that... We can we can spend decades getting into that market for not just right. movies but for video games. And you're you're saying that's the market for physical media in the future? Absolutely, because because right now it's not a market for much of anything in terms of uh, our, you know sort of a Western media influence. It's just starting to get there. You know, that's what I mean. I, I think that's how as a globalization uh, of the economy in general comes to pass. Media obviously is the easiest way to do that. Uh, you know, distribution. Well, yeah, because you could distribute those goods. You know, digitally, <laughs> you don't have to even ship them anywhere. Absolutely, you know. Uh, but I think you, you're always going to have a, uh, a market for physical media, and you always, I always don't remember, uh, forget about the military is a huge, huge market for uh, video games as well. And I think that would hurt oh, them yeah. a lot all, if you got people playing. Media. All the people who would play Halo in their tent during the Iraq War, and yeah, they pretty sure they didn't have internet. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, those forward operating bases, the people that, you know, in Afghanistan that were, like, you know, set up way out there. And it's like, yeah, it'd be nice for them to do it. And I'm not going to say that's one of the reasons why you'll think about it business-wise, but I think if you cut out that market entirely, you're not just going to piss off people, but obviously that's a, you know, that's, that's lost money. And I, and I think I think as we get forward, like I said, I, I think you might get to a point where, yeah, if they, if they lower the price on digital games by 10 or $15 and really make it worth, worth buying versus now where it's the same price mm-hmm. when a game comes out, I think you might see a shift there uh, more so, or maybe it's a generational thing, but I think for the next 20 years or so, I think physical media is safe. My opinion, you know, we, we can agree or disagree there. Uh, but but the one thing about movies... I, I, I would definitely disagree, because even in developing countries, there's still a shitload of cell phones. That's how most people, like in Africa, get their internet. And So, well, I, cell phones is another example. Cell phones have no physical media, and cell phones are just blowing away everything. Sure, but that but it's easier to get uh it's easier to get hooked up to a satellite than to wire internet into an entire country, you know, house to house, fiber optics. My my final closing statement on, you know, digital online only DRM is if you're sitting at home and your internet stops working, everything in your house is basically worthless except for books. And you're like, Oh my god, you know, it's like the the lights go out during the thunderstorms, like, what can I do? The internet's not working. And I would say the fact that people react to their internet going out in that way is why always connected devices are something that people actually want rather than say they like to complain about. Like, oh no, my computer's always connected to the internet. Blah 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 blah. Oh no, I lost my connection. I mean, it sucks. Like if I'm at work and well, we don't usually lose our internet connection, but it's like it's like the end of the world kind of <laughs> Well, sure. And I think that that's my final statement about it is that the consumers lose hugely if not given the option for physical media in terms of trans, you know, transporting from one device to another. Playing, right, right. Playing, playing Zelda Breath of the Wild on a plane would be impossible. Um, and then and having the freedom where if they screwed up and realized, hey, I bought a piece of shit game, they could right. easily, more easily return it trade it, sell it to a, a mom-and-pop game store to get some of their money back. Steam has refunds now. Like, if the first two hours of playing the game, you can get a refund. Like, that Bethesda guy was like, well, if people don't like Prey, it's kind of a demo because you can just return it on Steam. Ha, ha, ha. Well, let, let's, see, let's see if the consoles ever... Let's see if Sony Microsoft <laughs> said you can return that game. I don't see that. <laughs> if, the, if they went full digital download, I mean, when they go full digital download, they pretty much will have to have that option. And one more thing, I mean... So many of these games are rushed to market. Um, like, what was it? Halo Anniversary Edition. It had a patch that was like half the size of the disc. So, if these games are having like, you know, 10 gigabyte mandatory, well, not mandatory, but 10 gigabyte day one updates anyway, you know, the fact that that disc, you know, oh, I didn't have to download 50 gigabytes because I installed it via a disc, even though I need to download, you know, 10 or 15 gigabytes and it update almost immediately. So, that's almost halfway there to the total size of the disc as is. So, People are already doing that. I will say this, though. For whatever reason, I still buy PlayStation 4 games on disc. I don't know why, but I still do. So. Well, there's always a fondness for physical media, though, as well. Uh, yeah, that's why, it's not that, like I'm ever going to take it to GameStop. I just, for some reason, like having the disc of Horizon Zero. I mean, what, a company like Limited Run Games has grown in size in only a year and a half, releasing uh, games that were only available digitally, and they sell out almost, uh, you know, I'd say a vast majority of their 
uh, sampling of games and also keeping something like the PS Vita alive in terms of software. Um, I think there will always be some fondness for physical media. Will it disappear entirely with the new generation right now that's growing up with Netflix and Hulu? Uh, it's hard to say, but whenever you think that you know physical media is gone, well, now they bring back vinyl. Now they bring back even cassettes are back in, in, in right. vogue. You know, so it's a strange sort of looking back period, but I guess in 100 years from now, what will you be looking back at? It's hard to say. If 100 years from now, and I argue, we talk about this on the podcast, 100 years from now, no one's going to care about uh, physical media on retro video games. There'll be very. It'll be like the original uh, tubes that they use, but you know, in the original phonographs before there were records. You know, it's going to be like, yeah, you're going to have the one or two two crackball, uh, you know, odd jobs out there. They'll be playing 150 year old physical media, but for the most part, it's going to be relegated to museums or a warehouse. You know, I, I still hope my Atari computer works in 150 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, the caps well, will probably be all burnt up by then. Well, uh, we're, we're probably going to be the generation that misses out and be able to live uh, for much longer than anticipated. They're getting close to locking down, you know, the, the, the gene, you know, the genome that actually causes aging, basically that that turns off cell regeneration. I think 50 years from now, you can actually have that conversation where people might be able to <laughs> slow down their aging process. They're getting closer with all this stuff going on in stem yeah, cells. But if people became immortal, that would cause a whole host of other problems, though. Oh, it absolutely! Like a science fiction movie, you know. It's like, oh wow, people are immortal, and then you'd run out of food in about twenty years. Well, I think if we get to that point, we'll figure it out. But um, yeah, I, I think it'll, it'll just be one of those things where if you want to live forever, it's going to cost you like a, a million dollars a year. They'll make the entry, they'll make the entry fee so high that you know what I mean. I think it'd be, it'd be boring to live forever, unless you were like a super robot or something. Well, that's one of the themes of uh, Highlander, one of my favorite franchises, is that, yeah, you could live forever, but after hundreds of years, you get pretty freaking bored of life once you've seen everything a thousand <laughs> times. Yeah, yeah, and you'd become very jaded and, and sad, I'm sure. <laughs> that That's one of the themes of uh, the, the excellent... The first movie's obviously great for Highlander, if you haven't seen it, but the series always comes back to... Uh, you change... Some people change drastically over hundreds of years, where it's very hard to keep sort of your eye on the prize of life, where uh, some some uh, one of my favorite episodes is that there was one immortal who loved life and was one of the best swordsmen, and then becomes a junkie uh, after hundreds of years, and, you know, he has to be put out of his misery just because what, what else is there to do uh, right. besides well besides fighting for your survival and cutting people's heads off I guess that plays into it too but in just terms of you know living and going through tons of long term relationships watching your loved one die time after time again uh, you know and then what else is there to do I mean that's have you seen have you seen the movie Near Dark with the vampires from the 80s I've heard of it I have not seen it though uh, it, it's a, it's directed by Catherine Bigelow, you know, the uh, first female to win Best Director for The Hurt Locker. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that the one with yeah, Bill Catherine Paxton? Bigelow. Yeah, yeah, with Bill Paxton. Okay. Yeah, she, she she directed a ton of movies long before Hurt Locker. Anyway, um, uh, it's about vampires, and one of the vampires in their crew is like a 10-year-old kid, and he's pissed because he got bit when he was 10, so he'll never grow into puberty, he can't have sex, and yeah, he's, <laughs> he's stuck as a 10-year-old, basically. Highlander, Highlander the series, I must have uh, cherry-picked that, because one of the plots was a kid like that, too. The kid was the kid was alive for like six, six 700 years, but was like always like 11 years old or 12 years old. Yeah. No, that, that would be even worse. <laughs> yeah, that was bad. So cool. Uh, oh, whatever. What other topics do you want to talk about? <laughs> I think we we got off topic there with the uh, with the cartridge. So we went from cartridges to immortality. Well done. <laughs> well, there's 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 a through line there if you look for it. Uh, what what surprises you 
uh, about YouTube and going on to YouTube? Do you consider yourself a quote-unquote YouTuber just by the fact that you're on YouTube, or do you consider yourself more of a uh, filling a niche market and you just happen to be on YouTube? Ah, uh, <laughs> that's yeah. Uh, hmm. Oh gosh, that's that's a tough one to answer. Yeah, I, I think when I think of a YouTuber, I think of someone that I think Why? you and Mark had that. Yeah, you and Mark had the same conversation. Like someone who there's so many people on YouTube, all they do is talk about YouTube. It's like this big uh, self fulfillment loop. And uh, I don't really consider my show to be like that. We try to produce content, you know, we edit it, and we we work on things for weeks and months. Uh, so I, I'm definitely on YouTube, but I don't necessarily think that my show really kind of fits what YouTube feels like these days. You, you see YouTube as a distribution method, not sort of your life and end-all, be-all. Right. Well, then also uh, we, we have corporate sponsors, so we I don't even think we monetize our videos. We We don't do anything with that. Whereas I know that's a, a big, obviously that's how most YouTubers work. Well, it seems like it's switching over to Patreon now these days, but uh, yeah, so I don't know. So yeah, we're definitely on YouTube, but I don't necessarily feel like a YouTuber. I, I hope, hope that's not a terrible thing to say. Is it because you don't feel sort of like, um, I'll, I'll bring up something like fan interaction and comments. Do you, do you wade into those at times? Is it something that no. intimidates I, you? Uh, it doesn't intimidate me, but, uh, that's someone else's job with the show. Uh, that's usually Karen or, uh, someone, that, uh, one of the guys in England. So I don't deal with that, but yeah, again, like if, if I was a more traditional YouTuber, it would be more of a one man show and I would be doing all of those things. And I don't, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not like, Oh, engage with me in social media, blah, blah, blah. I don't do any of that. Basically it's like, okay, I make the show. Here's the show. And the interactions, the times I do interact is usually filtered, uh, through some of my coworkers. Uh, to me. So, yeah. Also, you know, our, our channel has about the same number of subscribers as as your average um, uh, watching cats fall asleep video channel. So, <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big. What have you seen in terms of the changing in YouTube since you started around 2010 now? What, like, how can you explain the changes? And do you, do you divorce yourself from that and just try to do your own thing? Or have you tried to navigate those quote-unquote pitfalls in the changing YouTube world? Well, I think, you know, one of the main problems you have on YouTube is there's just so much content on it, you can get lost, and you have to stand out, or like when we had that Nintendo PlayStation uh, teardown, which I assume you're going to, you want to talk about as well in this episode, because you're like into classic games and stuff. Um, but yeah, when we did that, you know, we had a lot of outside uh, influence. I mean, it's, it's easy to talk about like, oh, you know, uh, you know, uh, news outlets or aggregate site outlets are out of date. YouTube's the future, but it's really when you show up on a bunch of other articles and uh, places online that point back to the YouTube episode that actually helps too. That's that's when we can break out. But if it's just one of our normal videos, we don't really have a breakout episode. So I guess my, my point is, if the episode kind of breaks out and is seen outside of YouTube, that actually g- gave us a big boost. But otherwise, there's this. I mean, there's probably if you probably. There's probably more content on YouTube. If you tried to watch it all, it would exceed the heat death of the universe. I mean, it's just really hard to, like, stand out. You know, there's just, what, hundreds of hours uploaded every second or some nonsense like that? I think it's like 300 300 hours every minute or something ridiculous like that. (laughs) It's insane. Uh, so how would you say you, you you found yourself standing out? Or maybe you didn't. You just were doing your own content, and then you all of a sudden became a magnet for the modding community. 
Well, I mean, I was I was pretty big into modding in that community long before YouTube even started up. So I didn't even really get into YouTube like, well, yeah, like, what, 10 years after I started doing console mods? Uh, like, doing a show just seemed like kind of a natural evolution because I've been doing it for about 10 years. And I'd been uh, on my own, self-employed for about six six years. And then I had the offer, like, hey, do you want to do a technology show on, on the internet? I think, actually, well, we started on Revision 3. Uh, my show did. Ah, Revision 3. I remember Revision 3. Are they, are they still around? No. <laughs> I don't think they are. Well, I mean, look at them. I mean, they were the king of the hill. I mean, well, Revision 3 was derived from, what was it, Tech TV, you know? So it's like cable tech news died. Revision 3 started up, and now YouTube is eating their lunch. There's always a bigger fish, as uh, they said in Star Wars Episode 1. Well, in the past, it's interesting that in the past 10 years, the evolution of something like G4, which was popular right when YouTube was getting started, and then you see that die within about four or five years, that's dead and gone. And then even the websites that were dedicated, uh, the biggest one being Game Trailers was a huge website, and it goes from being being one of the biggest video game sites on the web, and that's dead and gone, uh, because because YouTube can uh, sort of uh, takes all the marketplaces and combines them into one and having one outlet. I, I used to love going to, uh, like, Joystick was a site that I really enjoyed. And uh, I don't think I went to game trailers very often. But then, yeah, I, I've, I have found, like, even two years ago, if I wanted to read about video game news, I would go to a website. And now I go to YouTube because, well, for the reasons you say, it's, it's just it's kind of weird. Also, it's, it's kind of it's weird. If you're reading a website... You have to actively sit there and read the website, but YouTube, I can just click a button and I can hear someone talk about a video game and I can go work on something else. That's a good point. It's a different delivery system in in sort Mm -hmm. of our, um, how we are in an environment nowadays where we're doing 17 things at once and, and sort of, you know, uh, being multifaceted where, okay, I'm talking to Ben Heck at the same time I'm reading my Twitter, which I'm not doing, Ben. I'm not disrespecting you. I'm saying I, <laughs> I'm saying I could do that if I wanted to. You know, multitasking is the, the word of the day. It's, it's actually interesting because um, I think 60 Minutes came out with a story. and we're, This is why I like doing podcasts where you can talk about other topics about how our brains are basically being hacked in order to become addicted to social media, especially stuff like Facebook and Twitter, where it's sort of the new drug in terms of... Uh, oh, you get, literally. You get that feeling of, oh, someone liked my liked my Facebook post and my food. I got a bunch of thumbs up and likes. Or, oh, I got 100 retweets of my tweet. It's a new sort of, um, I guess, delivery system. Uh, versus nicotine, you could say. Where I, I was just, I was just going to say that if you look around in society, in all the situations where people used to smoke, now they're on their cell phones. It's like the new, just like a drug. It's like the new random thing to feed into yourself when you're bored, or when you're by yourself, or when you're waiting for your food. I think it's amazing that this is not being. I mean, people are talking about it, but when you look at, uh, you know, when you look at the people that are dying because they're on their cell phone when they're literally having their head down walking across the road and getting hit by cars or worse people uh whenever now i'm in a car and someone in front of me is behaving weirdly when they're driving i always think they're not drunk they're on their fucking cell phone part of my language because it's very dangerous now it's become like more dangerous to me than worrying about drunk drivers is people having literally having their head down while they're driving it's insane I, uh, I this is this is several years ago. This is I don't know, it's probably like ten years ago. 
But I don't know, me and my friends went to Best Buy or something, and we were on our way back from Best Buy. And ahead of us, there was like a RAV4, and it was swerving all over the road. And like, you ever like do something where like you, you come back from the bar, or especially like if you go to your friend's house for a Super Bowl party, and then you drive home, and you see people that are clearly drunk, right? You can sure. tell when they're driving. But this this car, it was it was like a cartoon caricature of a drunk person. It was like over the center line, over the gravel. It was It was... No joke. It was so bad. I called nine one one. Wow. And but then she turned, and it was just a soccer mom on a cell phone. Yeah. But I mean, like, she, she, but if she had been driving like that at like eleven o'clock at night, she would have been pulled over in three seconds. <laughs> I think this is. It's not an epidemic now where you're going to have like a bunch of um like PSAs and people getting there, but already I think you're going to get to the point where like in the DSM. Uh, manual, what, up to five for, you know, mental disorders, you're going to have people addicted to social media, and it's going to become something bigger and bigger going forward. And I think it's right. going to, I think for some people, not all, especially since now where young children are growing up with tablets and cell phones, it's going to do some sort of uh, rewiring uh, in some, at, some, at some level, I think, how your neurons will even fire in your brain. That's just me. I'm not trying to sound like an old person yelling out clouds, but I, I think that's where you could be headed with technology in general. Exactly, because if you, you think about like a drug, if you think about like um, nicotine or cocaine or pot or caffeine or any, any drug that you know people you know consume on a regular basis, the drug triggers certain things in your brain, and it's the anticipation of that being triggered that's why you do it. You're like, ooh, yeah. But you know, interactions with media it can also trigger endorphins and, and feelings in your brain. So yes, it's not a substance being injected into your body, but as you say, it's like your brain. It's stimuli. Into th- yes, it's stimulus. Yep. Yeah, I could, the closest thing I could I could sort of um, have an analog to would be gambling. Uh, gamblers aren't addicted to the fact that they might win money. They're addicted to the high of going through the process of will I or won't I? You know, that's and it's almost the same thing where will I or won't I? Will I or won't I get? Uh, will I or won't I get noticed uh, posting something on Instagram and getting a thousand likes? You know, there's always there's already people that I think it's already uh, some people are even addicted to taking selfies. So people, some people will take a thousand selfies a day to get that perfect one. They think they'll get the best reaction. It, did, you, did you watch that Black Mirror show? No, but it's it. I think it probably goes over a lot of things we're talking about because it's a basically a, a world dominated almost entirely by social media. Correct? Yeah, there's there's an episode like the first episode of the new season that was produced by uh, Netflix. There's an episode and it actually stars Bryce Dallas Howard, Ron Howard's daughter, and it, it's basically that same thing where it's in the future and all anyone cares about is their social score. And like in her case, like she gives, gives everyone a five and then people give her fives, like all the lower class people, so to speak, give each other fives trying to ascend to a higher class. (laughs) And then, and then she takes like a certain, she takes a certain Instagram type photo and one of her friends from high school sees it and invites her to her wedding. Now, normally she wouldn't get invited to the wedding because the wedding is like for four sevens and four eights. And she's only a four, four, but then she's like, you're talking about average score, 4.4. Yeah, 4.4, 4. 4. 4. 4. yeah. So, and then, yeah, so she's talking to the uh, her friend from high school who's played by Alice Eve, and she's like, oh, yeah, um, my, my counselor said it would be good street cred inviting some lower fours to our wedding, so you should come. And it's and then just like she's she's applying for an apartment, and they're like, well, you need to be a, you need to be a 4.5 to get this apartment. So she's like, well, if I go to a wedding with a bunch of 4.8s, that'll definitely get me up to a 4.6, and then I can get the apartment. Oh, and my then, God. 
as she's trying to get to this wedding, it's kind of like a planes, trains, and automobiles type thing where it all goes wrong. But I mean, that it, I think what what makes good science fiction, and that was definitely one of the best episodes of the new season of Black Mirror. Well, that's why I think it's fascinating about science fiction in general is because these are things that are based upon our current technology that are definitely possible. That's real science fiction. You t- yes, you take something that's an idea, and then you take it to its logical, most horrific end goal conclusion, <laughs> and then you make a movie about that. Like if you had like, oh, what if people could live forever? Then you have a movie where everyone lives forever and you know everyone starves to death. There's some sort of ironic Twilight Zone twist ending. But yeah, that is the best. Like if I look at something like uh, Star Wars, Star Wars is not science fiction. It's, it's a space movie. Yes, with lasers and you know ships and stuff. Uh, but, or like, but Planet of the Apes, like, well, the original or that new one, that is science fiction. Like, oh, let's try to cure Alzheimer's. Oh, we destroyed the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, was that also the plot to the, the shark movie with Deep Blue Sea, that sh- or the sharks became super intelligent? Because yeah, they're because kinda... they're, they're trying to cure Alzheimer's with sharks. <laughs> Which actually, though, is based in science, though, is it not? They're, they're actually trying to do something there. <laughs> I always wanted to make a movie um, where they try to make deer more intelligent so people don't get into car accidents because of deer. That seems like the most logical animal to make more intelligent. Uh, but then, of course, the deer turn evil. It's called brain say, deer. There's way too many deer out there. There's millions of deer in the U.S. <laughs> you don't want to do that. Right, right. Well, but, well yeah, but, but it's like, it seems like a logical animal to make smarter, right? Or if you're down in Florida, they run into alligators. Then you're just happy they don't want fingers to shoot us. It's because planet of the deer, and they just take over. That's that's yeah. the twist ending. Is that at the end, <laughs> there's a there's like a sentient deer driving a car, just yeah. like an ape. <laughs> no, I lo- uh, science fiction to me is always fascinating because it shows how wrong you can inject uh, science combined with the human nature that can often go horribly wrong, and you know, and co- combining right. those. That's why Twilight Zone to me is is an incredible series. I wish we had something like that today where people can be maybe warned of our current behavior and, and how bad it could, you know, the, sort of the bad end it could lead to. Uh, yeah, well, Black Mirror is probably the closest to that. Although Black Mirror doesn't, Twilight Zone usually had ironic endings, and Black Mirror is. They're not as consistent with how they end. Well, Black Black Mirror had an episode where a cartoon bear runs for parliament in England and almost wins just because he's rude and crude and people think he's funny. And that was like two years before our current election. So, yeah, I mean, it is uh, it is that that kind of science fiction is 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 cool and important because, well, for the reasons you mean, it's real science fiction. You take well, Max and I were talking about that last night because we were like some of my coworkers. We had some beers, and he was like, "I'd like to make a movie about like a stem cell monster." It's like these researchers are trying to, you know, do something with stem cells, and they they create like this this monster turns evil, and it's like the fly, and all he wants to do is die. And I was like, "Yeah, that's kind of cool," because like like okay, what if we changed ourselves? Like we're trying to fix Alzheimer's or trying to improve our brains, and then what if you know we took it too far, and then we had some sort of you know evil monster, blah blah blah. And that's always the fun stuff. I think. My idea was like there could be – I was like, okay, let's let's make it a – this guy, he's got this great life and he's uh, engaged to this wonderful girl and then he dies. And he has – he signed his organ donor card so his body becomes a medical cadaver, which is one of the things that can happen to you. And then they try to reanimate him with like stem cells and then – I guess that would basically be reanimator, wouldn't it? I was going to say that's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. <laughs> 
You're basically just <laughs> right, right. for the modern age. But isn't that always what great science fiction stories are based upon? The road to hell is paved with good intentions, where exactly. you, try to, you try to do something good, uh, and it goes horribly wrong. You go back to, like, the lizard in Spider-Man, where he's trying to regrow his arm, and then he becomes a lizard man. You know, yeah. like, it's, it's, it's sort of... It's always like, uh, you, you shouldn't... You shouldn't um, Fool with Mother Nature because right. it, you know, yep. Jurassic Park. You know you don't want to meddle with things you don't understand because you don't have full control over it. And 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 I oh, guess what about, did you see that movie Snowpiercer that was on Netflix with like uh, Captain America. Uh, 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 Captain America or the actor who plays was that, I, was yes, that a Marvel Chris, Yes, Chris Evans is in it. <laughs> I <laughs> Captain <saw>. America. <laughs> I, I think I saw some of that on USA. I saw the last 20 minutes where it, it's just a per, like a perpetual like train going around. Is that what it well, is? The, the premise is the scientists shoot probes into the upper atmosphere to try to stop global warming, and it ends up freezing the planet. So again, I mean, that's not a huge – that's not much of the plot, but that is the backstory. So yeah, it's the same thing. It's like you, you take something and you're like, okay, well, what if we went way too far in the other direction? And then, Well, actually, there was, a, there was a Twilight Zone like that, an episode. Remember? The, this, this, the, the Earth was going toward the sun or something and everyone was burning up. Yes. And then she wakes up and that was just a dream because in reality the earth was going further away from the sun and everyone was freezing. So it was like two horrible situations, a dream within a dream. Oh, sure. Right. So what does that say about uh, our current climate status? I don't know. (laughs) Right. But it just goes back to like, yeah, it's always fun when you're like, okay, let's try to solve a problem. Oh, wait, what if we solve the problem and create another problem? Boom, science fiction. Yeah, that, that's that's what I love about it. Um, right. And that's why, you know, Twilight Zone, I always go back to, I can never get away from those marathons that happen, you know, 4th of July or New Year's. Do you ever watch the old Twilight Zone, and then each one you realize what movie ripped off that plot? Oh, so sure. many movies have ripped off Twilight Zone. And then you have Ray Bradbury complaining that his books were getting ripped off for plots, you know, and he was talking about that for years. Even I saw him on his, uh, a year before he died at Comic-Con, he was talking about mm-hmm. that. How he was got gotten ripped off because he used to write for some of those in his books. Anyway, whole other conversation. We're getting into Twilight Zone. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. Great. I, I love that show. It says here you also wanted to talk about pinball and the switch. Uh, sure, we can we can pull back the curtain that I have a topic list. Sure, we can do that. Ben. <laughs> Why not? Um, you're the first one to do that. Um, let's talk about your love of pinball, Ben. That's a natural segue. Uh, were you always a big pinball fan as a child? I thought the machines were interesting. I don't know if I was a big fan. Uh, when I first saw them, like when they started to become more complicated in the 90s, I thought it was interesting how they told abstract stories with a ball rolling around. Like I was like, oh, look, a Back to the Future pinball machine. That's cool. It's got lines from the movie, even though they didn't have the actors. Uh, I, I, I just kind of thought that stuff was kind of neat. And then uh, how I really got into it was it was like the mid-90s – or no, I'm sorry, the mid-2000s, and I wanted to – create a new project, like kind of a new background project. And I was like, I should try to make my own pinball machine. So I kind of just did it as a challenge. Uh, then I made that uh, infamous Bill Paxton pinball machine. That was probably like, what? I don't know about ago? this. You must explain this infamous machine then to me. Well, I, I, I had this idea that I wanted to build a pinball machine because I thought it would be fun. I just wanted – now, this is while I was doing other projects as well. So what happens with me is you know, I'll be doing projects, but then I'll always want to do something else in the background. Uh, like my new thing now is I like to manually wire eight bit computers together, but you know, ten years ago I was like, oh, I should build a pinball machine, and I was like, it needs a theme, 
And I was like, well, you know what theme would be crazy? What if it was based off all the movies and roles of Bill Paxton? <laughs> so I started collecting like dialogue uh, from discs because I had a roommate at the time who was like a movie hoarder. So I just like, you know, and just by statistically, there's a lot of Bill Paxton movies in there because he's been in a lot of films. So I'd like, you know, copy the dialogue off the discs or like rent discs off Netflix and just get all the dialogue. And, you know, I was collecting a bunch of dialogue for a couple of years. And then I cobbled together this pinball machine using like old used parts that I bought off Craigslist. And I uh, took it to a, a show. We have a show in Wisconsin here called the Midwest Gaming Classic. It's in Milwaukee. And I was like, hey, look, I've made this pinball machine. And everyone's like, this is so cool. And then I started, like, uh, kind of well, getting well, in hold touch. Hold on. Like, Let's back up. When you said you just made a pinball machine, you made the full physical body. You put the cabinet together. Yeah. You wired it up. And it was working with – it was like a solid state, I'm guessing? No, it was it was computerized. It had uh, speech and music. Okay. Yeah, if you, if you Google Bill Paxton pinball, you will definitely find a photo of it. I, yeah, I built most of it from scratch, although I – I didn't really need to because there's a lot more – there's a lot of – I reinvented the wheel for a lot of things I didn't need to do. Also, did really didn't know what I was doing. But I managed to get it together and uh, yeah, and then I just – all the, like that's the thing. Like if you do something like that, it's like if you're like, ooh, I want to make pinball machines. Now, if you just go up to Stern and say, hey, give me a job, they'll be like, no. Uh, but if you make something really cool, uh, then they'll start talking to you like uh, – Pat Lawler, who's like one of the most famous designers, he designed like uh, Adam's Family and uh, Twilight Zone Pinball and Funhouse. He actually made a game in his garage in like 1988, and Williams saw it and hired him. So that's actually happened a lot. Uh, yeah, so I started, uh, I made that game, and then I started talking to other pinball people, and I was talking to uh, Charlie Emery, who runs Spooky Pinball now, and he was like, you know what, we could make a game. Because he was working for Jersey Jack Pinball at the time, and he he wanted out. And so he's like, we could take your ingenuity, and I'll start a company, and we'll make a game. And I'm like, well, that's a crazy idea. And I'm like, because <laughs> so I, 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 at that time, I'd already started making my ghost game, my America's Most Haunted game. And I was like, I'm going to make another game for some reason, because I'm crazy, I guess. And so I'm like, okay, well, what if, if you make the company, then this could be your first game. Because he was going to make a zombie-related game, but my game I had already been – I'd been working on it for about a year at this point. So I'm like, well, this is further along, so why, why this could be your first title. Uh, yeah, and, and, and the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was surprised to, to – that was one of the last things I learned about you was your involvement in pinball. And I think in general – there's some analogs to retro video games in pinball, but I don't think it's exactly the same. I mean, as we know, pinball died out in the mid to late 90s. At first, you had about yep. six or seven major pinball manufacturers. They all go under except for Stern. And then for a good, a good 10, 12-year period, all you have is Stern pinball machines, about two a year, roughly, something like that. Then all of a sudden, though, the past, the past five years or so, you have all these boutique companies uh, popping up, Jersey Jack, Dutch right. Pinball. Uh, like you said, the one you're involved with, spooky pinball. Mm -hmm. I think it's fascinating, and it's always good to have more, more. It's always good to have more competition than not, obviously, in anything, especially with something like pinball, which which is harder to get into than developing a video game. Yeah, well, the, the weird thing that happened. I'll tell you exactly what happened. Uh, since this is kind of outside of the pinball realm, I guess I can go a little bit deeper because I usually don't say half the things I know about behind the scenes. Uh, but what happened was. Um, you know, yeah, Stern was the only company for about 10 years, and but they were also having trouble, especially after the uh, recession hit. And uh, they got some angel investors to help them out, and they, they continued on. Now they're actually doing quite well. Uh, but 
Jersey Jack, as you mentioned, he was a Stern distributor. And so about 2009, 2010, he's like, I do not like the games being made by Stern. I don't think I can sell them as well. I'm going to start my own company and make games that are closer to the 90s Williams games so I can sell them. And so this is like 2010. And actually, at one point, he tried to hire me. I was like one of the first people talking. Like myself and Jerry Ellsworth, uh, we met with him eons ago. But he doesn't pay that well. So <clears throat> anyway, uh, <laughs> All right. uh, so there's an awful thing that I just said. But so anyway, um, yeah. So he's like, I'm going to make Wizard of Oz, and I'm going to charge $6,500 for it. And people just they're like $6,500. I mean, this was at a time when you could get a game from Stern, brand new, shipped new in box for like $4,000 ish. Right? Sure, for their base model. They only had one model back then. That was before. Oh, they, they did. Had, oh, mm-hmm. they didn't. They didn't do that pro premium stuff until Tron, I believe, in 2011. Okay. So basically, uh, what Jersey Jersey Jack basically he didn't save Stern, but they started making money hand over fist because of him because he basically demonstrated what the price ceiling was for pinball, and it turns out it's much higher than Stern was charging. So Jack started his. Uh, Jersey Jack Pinball and made Wizard of Oz, which has a, has a lot of stuff in it for $6,500. I played the alpha version of that. I met Jersey Jack back at, oh my God, was that E3 2011 he had it there? Or 2012, 12? yeah. I played it there. I was I was unaware that there was another pinball company. I was like blown away that sitting in front of me was a new pinball machine by a new company. Um, and then it had the big, you know, it had the, it was obviously all, all it, it was, I mean, it was wired up for like scores, but not for anything else. Yeah, it was uh, it pretty had early the, at that time. And it had the big LCD monitor, which I thought, I was like, oh, this is sort of an ingenious step forward for pinball, if you're willing to go there. Um, so for that alone, I was like. RGB lighting under the inserts, that was new with his game as well. Sure. So all the toys are working. You had the spinning house and everything, but yeah, it wasn't. You know, all the story, all the modes and everything weren't working yet. And so I'm just happy that uh, we're at a point now. Well, I didn't realize another one exists: Highway Pinball. So at least you have a handful of pinball companies out there putting out different uh, different products at the same time. Yeah, it's I, I, Stern, Spooky. No, Stern, JJP, Spooky, Highway, and the Dutch. Yeah. Yes, and oh, there's also a guy in China trying to build a factory. Oh, okay. So we'll see what happens there. And they'll only cost $500 each, so they'll cut the prices down somehow from China. It, I, <laughs> it, it, hasn't, it hasn't been as easy as he thought. Uh, he's an Australian who expatriated to China. He's like, oh, I can just build my whole factory here. I'll just redo everything from scratch. But the thing is, Oof. there's no infrastructure for pinball over there. Like, everything is basically here and, and in the Midwest, too. Like, you know, like the, the lockdown bar, you know, the thing that holds the glass in place at the bottom? There's sure. there's one tool for that. There's one mold stamp. That's it in the whole world. <laughs> well, there's two of them. There's so two of them. Actually, that. Yeah. So it's yeah. basically one supplier. Okay. Yeah. Or like the window, you know, like the window that like Creature from the Black Lagoon and Congo had and that uh, the Big Lebowski game has. There's one There's one die for that. And uh, Rick has it out in California. So there's it's a very small – it's really in the grand scheme of things a very small market and pretty much all of the uh, – all of it is in America, so that's the guy. The guy thought doing it in China would be super easy and super cheap, but it, it turned out not to be easy. Well, making pinball is hard. Well, anyway, going back to Jersey Jack, um, he it took him a while to get Wizard of Oz done, and you know they've his company kind of has been trickling games out. They they need to make more games. As the, they have what two games that are out? They have three. They just uh, they dialed in is their most recent original theme. 
that came out like in uh, October. But anyway, he just he basically showed Stern, hey, these collectors, most of whom are like, they're, you know how like all the video game collectors are like thirty years old, you know, and they, they, and they grew up with the N sixty four. The pinball people are on average about fifty years old, so they're like the next wave of collectors. Right, so the people—that's why I think the Nintendo collecting that'll probably drop off a cliff in about five years, because basically you have people that with disposable incomes but not saddled down by kids yet, and so then like from thirty to forty they got to deal with the kids, but then once the kids are gone, then they start spending money again on things like pinball machines. So the pinball market is basically uh, a nostalgia generation behind the current people driving the game pricing. Well, it's also a luxury collectible field. You have to have a, a big a big house to be able to have five to ten pinball machines or more. Mm-hmm. You got to have a lot of money, uh, which, it's, which is both good and bad because uh, obviously these machines aren't cheap. But there's always going to be a very high entrance fee that'll keep this away from ever you know growing where you have a million people uh, playing pinball machines at the same time. Like it's it's right. unfortunate, but that's just the way it is. Like, but it's, it is good now when I go to a, a local bar or barcades are now popping up. There's one that's going to be uh, opening close to me relatively soon, that it's good to have new pinball machines available to place in these locations. So that's going to keep it alive. Uh, Barcades in in general, I think, are helping keeping arcades in general alive, but also pinball machines as well. Definitely. I I think one of the things that helps... Oh, just one more point with Jersey Jack. So the thing is, like, if you can afford a $4,000 toy, you can afford a $6,000 toy, basically. And so Jersey Jack showed that people were willing to pay more for games. And so then Stern's like, okay, let's have premium games. Let's put more things in our games. Let's get more expensive licenses. So Jack basically enabled Stern to raise their prices and make even more money. So ironically, because he was worried about Stern going out of business, he ended up helping them greatly. It was kind of funny how that worked. But anyway, Damn you, Jersey Jack. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, but yeah, when you talk about the location stuff, I think the fact that like around here in Madison, like in the last couple of years, like there's this group of three guys and they've been just been putting games everywhere. So even if you do have, you know, the higher middle class, more affluent people, they're not necessarily all just storing the games in their basements. A lot of them basically route their collections. They're like they hobby routes, so to speak. But, you know, hell, it gets the games out there. Which is cool. I just think, you know, the prices are kind of high, and even the used prices are just insane. Like, everything, like, pinballs, you you can buy a pinball machine, it does better than the stock market. It's insane. Like, I had a Theater of Magic, I paid 42 for it, I sold it for, like, 55 and if I would have kept it a few more years, I could get, like, 65 for it. It's insane. Yeah. I almost bought it on Craigslist. I was probably, like, literally 20 minutes too late to respond to someone that had a, a fully working Twilight Zone for only, like, 4000 Really? You say, well... Most people would be like four thousand dollars. This is like three, four years ago. Yeah. That's probably worth what double now or seven thousand. You know, it's like it's insane. Not double, but probably at least five. Uh, yeah, it's it, even like clunker, like Congo, for instance. You know, it was based off a shitty movie. Uh, the game didn't sell very. The pinball machine didn't sell very many copies. A lot of them were destroyed because they ripped it apart to fix better games like Attack from Mars. So now that game is worth big money. It's just insane. Well, let's see. People are trying to get nine grand for Twilight Zone on eBay. I'm not sure that's going to happen. That's ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> let's see. 8,000 buy it now. Um, so if it's an 8,000 buy now, maybe that means they can sell it for six or seven. I don't know. But yeah, but there's definitely there's definitely speculation in the in the pinball market. Well, people on eBay, it's just like those, those well, hell, like, Kind of like on Pawn Stars, which you have familiar, familiarity with. Like they what? see, <laughs> well, like the Pawn Stars, they paid like two two grand for an Evil Knievel pinball machine, which is insane. That's way too high. So people see those shows, or they see American Pickers, and they're like overpaying for some 
dirty, ratty electromechanical machine from a basement, and they think every game is worth big money. Like, Twilight Zone would have to be pretty much mint restored to be worth eight grand. Like, a regular routed one is probably more around five to 55 these days, but four grand would have been a deal. Definitely. Oh, oh yeah. That's, that's why I was annoyed I didn't get it, just because I have room currently for maybe one put pinball machine, so I yep. have to be very careful which one I choose. And so I figure... <laughs> Yeah, so I, I and now it's, it's funny because it's not my most favorite machine to play, but it's in terms of how it looks, in terms of the theme, it's probably my favorite overall. Uh, then again, it's I get a, to play. It's a big, very deep game. It'll definitely give you a lot to do. Then again, I have yet to play Big Lebowski pinball, and Big Lebowski is one of my favorite films, so that would be interesting. Uh, uh, I to think look Twilight at. Zone pin is gonna probably stand the test of time better than Lebowski. Lebowski is kind of a thin game. It's got mm-hmm. really cool mechs, but the code doesn't doesn't really do it for me. My all-time favorite just to play, Medieval Madness. I just I think it's so goofy and fun. Uh, yeah, Stern, you know, Stern actually re-ran that a few years ago. They made That's it. right. Mm-hmm. And what did they charge for that? It was like seven or eight? No, $8,000. Because, okay, so yeah, that's a game that would have cost like 3300 back in 97. And they the same thing, like in the late 90s, pinball was dying. So they only made like two or 3,000 of each game versus like 10,000 of each game even in the early 90s. So Medieval Madness became like this cult hit over the years. And uh, even like beater pieces of crap out of the back of a pizza joint were going for like <laughs> eight grand. And then like any even any sort of decent condition was like 12 grand and restored, you could get 25. So people were like, wow, it's an $8,000, $14,000 pinball machine. And I was at the convention when they announced that remake and people were literally running down the hall to uh, <laughs> sign up for one. So Medieval Bandits is, is sort of became a quote-unquote holy grail, you could say, among pinball players and collectors. Why do you think that happens? That's ironic, because it's basically an unlicensed Monty Python holy grail. <laughs> the theme oh, is... Oh, sure. But I mean, why do you think that happened happen? for a game like that? Yeah. But obviously, besides, it's really fun. Besides that. Right, right. Well, okay, I, so I had... I sold it, actually, because I knew a remake was coming. I had a really nice Attack from Mars, which is from the same designer, um, Which I like that one too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Medieval Madness is basically the same game. The layout and the shots, it's basically the same. It's just with a different, uh, a different theme, obviously. Uh, well, it's you know, it it plays. It's basically Attack from Mars, but with a different theme. The castle toy is really cool. Like that, it's just one coil. One coil yanks on some spring-loaded towers, and it looks like the castle's breaking. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had really good writing. Like they actually hired people from Second City to uh, write the dialogue, and actually uh, Tina Fey and Scott Adsit, uh, like from uh, Thirty Rock, did voices in it. Like one of the princesses in that game is Tina Fey. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. She's the one who's like, "Hey, marry me so we can get a divorce." Like the Cockney <laughs> princess. Uh, yeah, so the the humor is really good. Uh, it's you know it's. You know, it's it's basically Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but they didn't have to pay for the license. So it's a theme everyone can understand. Uh, the dialogue is funny. It's pretty straightforward. Basically, you just – well, I mean, there's other goals, but you know, the main goal is to bash the castle and, and open it up. And yeah, and it's got great music. Yeah, it's just like – it's like kind of like an all-time winner. That, I mean, yeah, that is basically the number one desirable pinball machine that exists. It's like basically the Holy Trinity is Attack from Mars, Medieval Madness, and Monster Bash. So right now on eBay, there's one up for ten thousand two fifty with no bids. Standard edition with shaker motor. I guess that's the re-release for yep. eighty six hundred, and then standard edition for eighty four hundred 
Buy it now with free shipping. I am priced out of that market. <laughs> I would just say that. <laughs> the, the remake basically uh, just crashed the prices. Uh, I mean, yeah, like so, so a Medieval Madness that used to be like $12,000, they probably dropped to like around eight. So basically, the remake crashed the prices down toward uh, the eight grand mark, which is why that you, you see there's a $10,000 one with no bids. Uh, three years ago, that would... That would already have be like a fifteen grand probably, but now you can yeah you can get them cheaper. So, so why doesn't someone keep making some of these, uh, getting the license for these older ones that are worth are. a ton of money and put I them mean, out? Doing, oh, they they're, are. They're doing an Attack from Mars remake, which is why I, I, as I as I mentioned, I hear a lot of things in the pinball industry. So I knew that an Attack from Mars remake was coming. So I sold mine, but it was still worth more. So Look I, at I, you, I, Ben. I Martha stewarded that one. I was gonna say this is inside <laughs> insider trading. You should go to pinball court. <laughs> So basically, people just watch what Ben Heck is selling and realizing, get out of the market now, crash the market, and then the new one comes out, you buy it for like 5000 cheaper, and you basically make a profit. <laughs> uh, yes. I Well, I only I only have one game now. I have a ratty old space shuttle. And I, my coworkers, I told my coworkers, I'm like, you know, if I sell one of these games, it's going to be Attack from Mars. And they're like, why? That's the best game. I'm like, ah, I don't wink, know. Wink, wink. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I I don't know how much the prices have been affected, but then of course I saw the Attack from Mars remake down in Texas at the Texas Pinball Festival. I'm like, wow, that's kind of tempting. Because and he actually lowered the price on that because I think he's trying to uh, bend Stern over. And Stern's, so right now, not, Stern's not manufacturing Attack from Mars remake. They did manufacture Medieval Madness, but Attack from Mars is going to be Chicago gaming. The remake is looks like the deposit for for coming out is sixty five hundred dollars. And then an original one, I think, is on right now for seventy five hundred or best offer for an original Attack from Mars. So yeah, Attack from Mars never got as expensive as Medieval Madness, but like in good condition, you could easily get ten grand for one, though. Well, restored condition, like like sure. mine, I could, probably could have gotten like ten k for mine like three years ago. But then, even when Medieval Madness remake came out, all the prices started to get started to get depressed because people realized anything was game for a remake. Do you see uh, the newer generation getting interested in pinball? How I see a newer generation, you know, getting interested in retro video games, or is it sort of separated now, still like the old guard? Well, uh, my editor at work, Max, he's twenty five, and he really is really wants to buy a pinball machine, so he's interested in it. I, like as you mentioned, the barcades, I think that attracts a lot of people. And in a world where everyone's just looking at their static cell phone screen and like you know looking at a computer screen or looking at their video games, like an actual physical game under glass, I think kind of has a retro old school feel the same way a classic Nintendo cartridge does. Well, that, that makes sense. Do you see there being a market crash, say in twenty years, when say these pinball players get into their seventies and be like, okay, I'll move for this one, to Florida. Or some just die, and then, I mean, it's, this is what happens. I get emails sometimes where someone has a huge retro video game collection. I got a message from someone, their husband died, asked me how to sell the collection, or my friend died, how do I approach the, the, the wife in order to buy the games or to sell them off? I mean, this is real stuff that has to be thought about, not just yeah. for the individual, but for the actual market. All of a sudden, you have hundreds of games flooded onto the market within a few months, and that starts happening regularly. I mean, I just read an article from The Guardian about Elvis collectibles plummeting in price just because all the all the collectors are in their 70s 80s and they're starting to die and all their collections are going back out into the market right yeah um right now i would say the average collector is probably 50 50 to 60 and yeah in uh 15 to 20 years they're going to be selling all their junk and moving to florida to die 
And so, yes, if, if pinball hasn't transitioned to a new market by that point, there's definitely going to be a major correction. Oh, one more thing. that The PlayStation Nintendo prototype, that was found in a box of dishes at an estate sale. Oh, there you go. So maybe someone will find some rare pinball machine they didn't realize a guy had seven of sitting somewhere. Because remember... Um, as, as I don't know if you heard of the name Tim Atwood before. People listening might understand that. There are collectors out there and people that are in certain hobbies that don't like to publicize what they have. And I'm sure it's the same for pinball, where you have some pinball aficionados out there that maybe have a bunch of machines that are either hard to find or don't want it to be known that they have one that's hard to get. And at some, po- at some point, those machines get put back out into the population and get circulated. Well, even like that, that Predator game that was made without the license and became a huge legal snafu. Um there's rumored to be up to six of those out there in the wild, most of them in Michigan. And it's kind of like a stolen painting. Like, people paid for it, but they're never going to say they have it. Oh, there's a Predator pinball? So I had no idea. That's that's fascinating. Now I'm in the market for one. <laughs> Basically, it was, it was a scam artist who uh, built a prototype and took quite a bit of money in pre-orders, but it turned out he never had the license. Oh, this is recent then. This is in the past five years. This is like two years ago, yeah. And now he's getting his butt sued off. <laughs> By everyone. <laughs> but, but, but the thing is, um, the rumor is that he had parts to make up to 10 games before his scheme was found out. And people speculate that he probably built all 10 and you know did cash under the table sales to people in Michigan. Interesting. But that won't save him from the lawsuits and the massive amount of debt he's going to be in. T- you know, uh, yeah, there. yeah, but... It, <laughs> That, that that kind of was an infuriating situation for us because you know we re- we did an original title and it's so much easier to sell a licensed game and so he was being handed money hand he was giving getting money hand over fist while we were like scraping for pennies with my game but in the end we won so which I always think is funny when it comes back to pinball machines and one of the reasons why I'm glad that not just Stern's doing because Stern was resting on their laurels and just doing you know like a World Series of Poker pinball machine or you know Harley Davidson I'm like this stuff doesn't really appeal to me that much even if I like playing poker I don't want to play a pinball machine based upon poker you know so yeah well that was when they were uh, first starting out they probably couldn't afford the really good licenses but I'm just saying in general, I, I, I like original theme pinball machines. And my favorites are originally themed. Yeah, right. I'll go back and, and like for example, my if I had a machine that will just say was my um the junk food or something that you know, like uh, I, something like Baywatch I like playing because it's so goofy and fun. The pinball but, uh, Yeah, yeah, the pinball machine. Uh, I would love I would love <laughs> to have one of those. That's a great bang for your buck game. So is Last sure. Action Hero. I don't know if I played that one. But the whole point is that I'm glad to have original themes out there, because otherwise you'd never get something like a Medieval Madness, which I adore. You know, you never would get attacked from yeah, Mars. Yeah, it's, it's tough, though. Um, like I mentioned, uh, so my, my game was, was a spoof of, like, reality ghost hunting TV shows. And it, uh, man, the f- we had a hard time getting to our goal of 150 units. Well, actually, once we got past 100, then it just went like in a heartbeat. Like, like I like to say, it took it took a year to sell the first hundred, and then it took a week to sell the last fifty. Like, which, once, to me, which to me is funny because if I had known about that, I would be interested in a theme like that. Like that's something I'd be because to me it's it's original. It shows ingenuity. Yeah. It shows creativity. To me, that appeals. People were eventually, you know. Now it's like. You know, it's worth like far more than we charged for it in the secondary market. So it's like it's like a hot game now, but it wasn't. It was a tough uphill road. Even like Medieval Madness, like it took you know it took twenty years for it to become the cher- or at least ten years to become the cherished classic that it is. And we had we had the same issue. And like right now, I 
spooky pin well i guess we're doing the uh, total annihilation game from uh from pinball life but everything we're doing now is licensed so then we did rob zombie we have an al scooper game coming and i'm, I'm working on another game which is a license and it's kind of tough you know it's people people say they want original themes but our experience is that you know you know you can say, oh, here's my uh, zombie game. But then if you're like, here's my Walking Dead game, it's like, oh, shut up and take my money. Yeah, I understand that. It's just, yeah, again, it's one of those things where I think people rest on the license and, and maybe get lazy with it, you know. Well, if you think about it, uh, there are advantages to a license. Um, like Money up front? Well, that too. But we were talking, well, even from a gameplay standpoint, like we were talking about Jersey Jack. And so his third game is called Dialed In. And everyone was like jizzing their pants because they're like, oh my God, it's an original theme with Jersey Jack production value from Pat Lawler, you know, who's like one of the top esteemed pinball designers. And he'd come back from retirement to do it. And then when the game is revealed, it's called Dialed In. And it's about this guy in this city full of disasters and he has a magical cell phone that he has to fight the disasters with (laughs) it's 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 a really good game but the title is stupid and the theme is the theme has to be explained to you i mean it's really it's kind of like a sim city pinball machine that is a terrible name they should change the name at least but it's probably too late but that's that's an awful name i told i told the programmer that i'm like that name sucks and he's like I came up with it. I'm like, yeah, it sucks. And they, they actually were going to change it, but then they didn't. Uh, because then you have all of these 50-year-old men complaining about how much they hate a game about cell phones and using their cell phones to post that opinion. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, but no, but it's, uh, it's, a really, it's a really cool game. Like, the presentation is, is awesome. Uh, but, you know, you, okay, so with the license, if I'm like Ghostbusters – you do not have to explain anything about the game. Like people mm-hmm. completely understand. Or uh, Game of Thrones. It's like, okay, cool. I'm going to be fighting people, killing people, you know, slashing dragons, boobs. You know, you don't you don't have to explain it. But when you have an original theme, you have to explain it. Now, but even with something like Attack from Mars or Medieval Madness, you kind of don't have to explain it because people are like, oh, I get it. It's cheesy science fiction with aliens. Oh, I get it. It's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's like it's like a shortcut. Even things that aren't original themes are like a shortcut to explaining the game. And uh, I guess my ghost hunting show. I think the miscalculation I made with that is that fifty year old men don't watch those shows. But I kind of thought, and it did turn out to be true that their wives like it because women like ghost shows. Didn't you also do a YouTube video that spoofed ghost hunting? Yes, we did. Uh, that was actually the basis for my game. It was called Ghost Squad. It was. But it was exactly that, and we're actually planning a sequel to that. We're going to film it in time for <laughs> Halloween this year. Ghost Squad Two. The That's ghost. pretty funny. And I'm actually working on a feature film that is not a spoof, but it's also like a, a ghost and like women and like ah, I'm scared. And the ghost is getting me. You're like t- typical horror stuff. So. Is, is that a, a independent Wisconsin production? Uh, no. It's hopefully going to be a little bigger than that. Um, oh. Yeah, I can't talk about it too much, but uh, that is one of the things I've been working on the last year is getting back into uh, film production. Well, which, which I saw you, you did, used to do short films too, and I did a couple, but not, I didn't get too into it too extensively. Um, well, if you have a if you have one of your original America's Most Haunted Machines around, maybe after I move, I could talk to you about getting one of them. <laughs> uh, I actually don't. I actually don't have one. By the time I was done with it, I was like, I never want to see this thing again. <laughs> Oh geez, it's it's sort of, it's sort of like doing doing a movie, I guess. After a while, like I don't want to see it. Uh, yeah, I, I've been 
Yeah. Chuck, uh, Chuck gave me one because I was I did a big code update last year. So I, I did a huge code update, even though the game had been sold out for over a year, because I wanted to give people confidence for my next game. Like, hey, Ben will get it done, you know. <laughs> and Chuck's like, oh, here's here, you can have this one. And then I'm like, okay, I'm done. You, do you want it back? And he's like, really, you don't want to keep it? And I'm like, no, I don't want to see this thing. <laughs> All right, if you're listening out there, I want that machine. I can't put it up now. I have to move into a bigger house, but I want that machine. Well, I think that one that one was actually I think it was damaged in shipping, so it uh we it got sent back. So basically it was uh an insurance loss machine. So oh. I I think <laughs> I don't think anyone can get I don't know how yeah. how I didn't know this existed. I had no idea. I I got to talk to Ian. Ian Ian's holding out on me on the pinball news, I guess. Well, we had uh we we limited our run to 150 games, and then Rob Zombie we doubled to 300. Al Scooper's 500. Mine's going to be more than that. Uh, so what are you, what are you charging your machines? Uh, Al Cooper I believe is going to be 6250. Uh, Rob Zombie and my game were both 6000, and then my next game, uh, honestly, by the time all the mechs are done, it could creep closer to seven grand. And for those out there, I think that's for those out there, I think that's insane. Now these are going for like nine thousand. A lot of these new machines, so like six thousand doesn't sound that bad to me. Knowing that yeah. a lot of these are like nine grand. Oh, that that kind of reminds me. Like whenever I see people complaining about the price of video games on YouTube, I just think about pinball machines. It's like, oh my god, like the way these people bitch about some slight thing that's wrong with their $60 game that cost $100 million <laughs> if they knew yeah. what it was like in the pinball. Oh, that, yeah, maybe that could be a closing topic, video game inflation. Well, I wanted, to seg- <laughs> I wanted to segue because I know Nintendo Switch has been in the news and I saw some of your tweets. We probably have some disagreement when it comes to the Switch. Oh, I definitely. Remember you, I remember you had a problem with the price point and I remember the time thinking, I think the price is pretty reasonable. Actually, yeah. I th- all the stuff you get with it, um, I think yeah, I would agree the price point is reasonable, have, having seen it in person. I, I think if it didn't have the, you know, the HDMI hub and, you know, to basically that one piece, I think you could say, okay, yeah, it should be $200. But the fact that Nintendo is charging $90 alone for that extra uh, video uh, HDMI slide-in piece um, tells that that's, that's not... Obviously, there's inflation on accessories, but I think that's price for what people gather it might be at the time. I don't know. It's hard to tell, um, right? You see that with all of the manufacturers. I mean, like, look at video game controllers. The prices of those have just has just skyrocketed ridic- ridiculous levels. And like you talked about with the peripherals, it's like they're using those as profit centers. Uh, like sure. the, the, the dock for the Nintendo Switch, um, charging $90 for that is basically ridiculous considering what's inside, but if Nintendo can get away with it, good for them. Sure. Well, it's like the Joy-Cons. I, 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 I complain oh, more yeah. so about... I complain Those more so expensive. about... Yeah, it's 80 for the pair. But I, I complain more so about the, the controller for 70 the Pro Controller, just because it was a proper directional pad... And this is the first Nintendo console where the default controller doesn't have a real D-pad on it. That, to me, was sort of uh, blasphemous since Nintendo came up with the D-pad, where I was like, that's kind of weird to me. So I did criticize a $70 Pro Controller that, honestly, I'd say a chunk of gamers are going to have to buy at one point. Like, for playing Breath of the Wild, the Joy-Con is fine, but if I'm buying a fighting game, I need to get that Pro Controller. I just have to get it to have a D-pad. Yeah, so we did a teardown on the Nintendo Switch, and, um, yeah, I was... Well, I'm... I'm very, I'm uh, yes, I'm very skeptical of Nintendo in general. That's a well-known thing. But if you look at the Switch, 
Um, it's a tablet, and then you've got those Joy Cons, and then you have they give you the dog face controller click thing, and then you get all of you get the dock all for three hundred bucks. So um, it's, you have to think like those Joy Cons. There's a lot of engineering in those. There's a lot of parts. There's three lithium batteries total in the system. You have like a heat pipe, intercooling system, a screen, a touch screen, a cartridge connector, a lot the of rumble. connectors. Yeah, gyros. So, yeah. so my my guess would be that they put a ridiculous margin on the dock and the controller to make up for a smaller margin that they probably are seeing with the console because there's a lot of stuff in that box for three hundred bucks. Yeah, I, I I like I said to when it first came out when they announced, I said I don't know how much Nintendo could have got away from you know like if they say if they charge two fifty, yes, people would have been like, oh yeah, that's a great price, but the Nintendo would have making much of a profit on at that point, and they probably wouldn't be selling that much more. If you're going to spend two fifty on a console, you'll spend three hundred. And when the Xbox One and PS4 comes out, and they're like four or five hundred dollars, uh, right. people don't complain as much at the price point. For somebody with Nintendo, they take an extra jab at them for that uh, for some strange well, reason. Well, Nintendo usually, you know, is the cheaper option between those, and they also have a history of you know not. Well, I think what system was it? They sold one system at a loss. I think it was either the GameCube or the Wii U, but typically they try to make a profit on their base console hardware from day one. I think the Wii U, they pretty much broke even, but then again, it's hard to tell because uh, they sold such a small amount that who knows if the scale you know, for doing 50 or 100 would have been cheaper than doing only selling only 10 or 11. I don't know. Well, I, I, one of the issues I have with Nintendo, well, I don't know if it's necessarily a problem that they have, but definitely something that I've noticed is their mentality as far as hardware sales is completely the opposite of Sony and, and Nintendo. Nintendo makes games in order to sell hardware, whereas Sony and Microsoft make hardware in order to sell games. So Nintendo... One of the I think that's one of the reasons they won't sell a console for a loss because it's like okay we'll lose you know fifty bucks in each console but we'll make that up with um, you know the license agreements for all of our sales because they tend to have a lower attach rate than the other consoles and most of the heavy hitters are first party titles they're not necessarily getting all the license fees although I guess they're getting the full price of the game uh, so yeah I think that's uh, yeah I, I I I'm I'm one of those people who wish that Nintendo would just make a full spec console and oh I'll, I'll tell you something that would just melt your brain <laughs> you're probably going to hate me for this but I already do okay like <laughs> if I were Microsoft I would buy Nintendo <laughs> isn't that awful well Nintendo would say no they I wouldn't. know but that would be a great synergy because then Nintendo would have great hardware and Microsoft would have great games it would be like a marriage made in heaven it, I would it say could this. never happen but it would be a better, I think it'd be smarter than buying LinkedIn. You you oh, yeah, that was bad. Uh, the buying LinkedIn that was didn't make any sense. I mean, think about uh, it. Like before Pokemon and the Switch, Nintendo's market cap was probably maybe like eight billion more than LinkedIn. Hell, why not just spend eight billion more dollars and get? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Go on. That's a, that's a pipe dream. No, I, I, I'm always fascinating how much these companies overpay for these software companies now, where it's like. Yeah. Uh, what was that? What did what did Facebook bought that Instagram filter plugin or say bought one? And it was like how much did they spend on that? It was like one and or two a, years ago. Apparently, it's, Snapchat is worth more than Star Wars. Yeah, well, that's just <laughs> you can't go buy stock price so long. That's insane, you know. It's just, but um, they got to pay that money back with those stocks. So that's that's a you know what I mean. That's also a, a debt that's built in, so yeah. to speak. Um, but the reason why I always say it's, you're better off with Nintendo not going to full powerhouse is because if they did that, then you wouldn't have what they just did. 
They wouldn't have had, they couldn't have done this handheld that can then double as a home console. You know, you want them to be able to play around. You want some company to be able to play around and experiment with doing something different. Yes, they, they failed with the Wii U, but then they learned from that to do the exact opposite of the Wii U and have a tablet first and foremost that then goes to the TV and not a TV console that goes to a tablet that's basically useless. You know, so I like that idea. I like the idea that because they didn't basically do a third uh, underpowered uh, gaming PC console, I can now go on my trip next week and go on a plane and play Breath of the Wild on, on a handheld. A quote-unquote handheld. Right. You know, a, a, a giant handheld, but still a handheld. So, I mean, yes, you yes, you won't get the exact same specs as an Xbox One or PS4, but then again, now you have PS4 and Xbox One titles appearing on the PC. Uh, I don't think they're long for this world either, having a dedicated sort of PC console for exclusive titles. So I think, you know, it is what it is with Nintendo, but their value is in their first-party titles. And so they're never going to give that up, and I think, and sort of give that ground up to the other companies. Yeah, I I know, but I just you sort of have to you sort of have to follow Nintendo whatever they do no matter what because they own those titles and they're never going to be third party. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Yes, that's true. Uh but, you know, 10 years ago no one thought BlackBerry would go away or 50 years ago no one thought IBM or Sears would go away and things can change. I just it just feels like I don't know, like almost like their games are held hostage on their system like um I was talking about this on my podcast. It's like, okay, Zelda Breath of the Wild um, that's basically a $360 game, and uh, I think they could sell even more if they were available on other systems. I know it'll never happen, but I kind of, I don't know, I think it's too bad. Well, the difference between BlackBerry is that you can do anything else on a cell phone that you could do on a BlackBerry, but you can't play Breath of the Wild on another console versus Nintendo. You know, that's the saying, difference. You know, like, 10 years ago, when iPhones started eating BlackBerry's lunch, people were like, oh, they have $10 billion in the bank, they're fine. And no, uh, but the, the, I'm I, I'm critical of Nintendo because I like Nintendo. I would I'd like I would like to see them around. I'd love to buy another Nintendo. I don't have a Switch because I was not I was not interested in it. And I just I don't know. It seems I just wish they would step up the game a little bit. Are you surprised that by the the overwhelming success so far of the Switch? Did you see this coming? Um, I don't think I'm too surprised because they're definitely like with that famous commercial with the, the the hipster commercial. They definitely know that their market is now 30 year olds who are nostalgic for N64 stuff, uh, not kids because I think kids have been pretty much lost to cell phones. Uh, so I think if that was a smart uh, move targeting that demographic. Uh, you know, if I I haven't seen a whole lot of people in the wild with switches, but you know, it's definitely like you know older people. Uh, I I guess we'll see in a year. I just. I just don't know. I mean, if, if it doesn't have third party, it's not going to make it. And we saw that same thing with the Wii U. Sure, but it's it's always a it's sort of a feedback loop, right? They, yes, they never got yeah. they never got bored of the Wii U because they never sold. So far, the Switch there's a possibility this, this year the Switch is going to outsell the Wii U for its four year lifespan, which is insane. And at that point, third parties be like, okay. This this system is more powerful now than the Wii U was versus the contemporary consoles. Right. We can take a cha- we can take a chance on a port, and I think that's where you're going to probably see it headed. Already, there's decent third party support, and and I think people always forget about the 3DS has really good third party support, and those all Definitely. those publishers all those publishers are going to come right over to the Switch when the 3DS is dead and gone in like a year and a half. I guess, I guess the question is though, where does the Switch fit in like a AAA studio's? Uh profile of games 
Because I, well, I think one of the problems, one of the things that killed the Wii U was when the Wii U started, it had it did have third-party support because at that time they were still developing Power PC-based games for the Xbox 360 and the PlayStation 3. The, basically, all those consoles have a Power PC processor from IBM. But then the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One switched over to x86, and so at that point there were basically fewer and fewer power pc ports you know like around 2004 like if you go i'm sorry 2014 like far cry 4 came out and they also made a version of that for the xbox 360 and the playstation 3 which makes it easier to port over to the wii u because there was a comparable build as far as power goes but now like in 2015 basically everything finally switched over to next gen so there aren't any last gen ports i think they think they still do it for like Madden and Call of Duty, but not much else. Well, so I guess, but that's but that's the good news for the Switch, though, is that the news is that porting games from the PS4 and Xbox One are going to be simple because uh, the architecture is similar. Well, no, but it isn't. The Switch is an ARM processor, and the rest of the gaming industry has gone to power. P- uh, I'm sorry, x86, basically PC. Uh, so I I don't know. That's the, the challenge. So you've got a game. You've got half the RAM. Uh, a weaker GPU, although it's it's pretty powerful, but it's still. I guess my thing is, you're not going to see direct ports. You're not going to see Horizon Zero Dawn on the Switch, and I think that could hurt it. I mean, the, the Xbox One, people complain about that system being weaker than the PlayStation 4, which it is, but it still gets parity of ports. You still get, like, the same game across platforms. I'm looking at what, what NVIDIA said back in the fall. I'm looking at, at they said that uh, they admit that the chips inside your PC, PS4, and Switch will have differences. The process will vary, but they still all use a common architectural language. That's, that's what, okay. basically what it's saying. So, I mean, that's why Skyrim's already announced, and, I mean, to do that game from scratch would have been insane. So, the fact right. that they're porting that over, the fact that they're, they're porting over NBA 2K is already announced and confirmed. They're going to have, I think, FIFA's already going to be on there. That, to me, is a great sign, because those are not the types of games that you got on the Wii U. Remember, EA pulled their support pretty quickly with the Wii U, probably because they figured it was a pain to port it over, but also there was no sales. It wasn't worth their time to do it. Right. You know? So we'll, we'll we'll see though. I mean, it all depends upon I think how it does it for this holiday season into next year. You know, because it's yeah, it's, gonna, it's it's automatically going to sell well for the holiday season just because it's if a holiday season. If it's still season. selling well, spring two thousand eighteen, then it has a chance. Because I think you also have to you know like you're, you're, like Nintendo also doesn't send out dev kits very early. They have less support for their developers than the other companies do. Like, well, that's one of the reasons. Microsoft made a big game because like Microsoft had great support for the 360 at the time when PlayStation was confusing everyone with the cell architecture, and now Sony has really good tools. Well, Sony also had really good tools back in the 90s. That was one of the ways that the PlayStation 1 got a good head start. I guess my point is, um, so let's say like I'm a AAA developer, and I'm like, wow, the Switch has sold 2 million units. This, this, you know, it might be worth it to make a game. I'm going to start making a game. I make the decision now. So when does my game come out? Come out like next summer at the earliest? And is the momentum still going to be there? Uh, oh, yeah. no, I'm, I'm more looking at it as, okay, I just came out with uh, my new FIFA game, and if it right. only costs me a certain amount of money to do the port, why not roll the dice and see what happens? You know what I mean? That's, right. that's the way I'm going to look at it. Versus, I'm not saying you're going to get a lot of exclusive AAA titles. You're probably going to get next to zero. Uh, you know, in terms of, okay, you might get Bayonetta 3, which you can make an argument is or is not a, a AAA title. But I'm talking about, okay, when GTA 6 comes out, is it possible to do a port over to the Switch? You know, or even do a GTA 5 port because that technology, you know, GTA 5 is already you know three three years old. So could we do that? And that'll at least pump up sales and give some people a reason to buy the Switch besides it being obviously Mario, Zelda, Star yeah, Fox, I and mean, they do a Metroid game. If uh, like Red Dead Redemption Two was available on the Switch this fall, that would be amazing for Nintendo. 
I just sure. kind of doubt it will happen because someone like someone like Nintendo, I'm sorry, someone like Microsoft would just lay a bunch of golden toilets at Rockstar's door and say, "Make it happen." I don't really see Nintendo doing that. Microsoft is like the guy, is like the guy who's a jerk, but he buys everyone around <laughs> of drinks at the bar and they love him. That's kind of how they do their development. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but the, but the other good news is that the dev kit for the Switch is really cheap, comparison to where Nintendo usually has. Uh, uh, I've spoken to obviously reports online; it's only four hundred fifty dollars for a dev kit. That's pretty cheap. Oh, um, yeah. um, and then I have a, I have someone I know who's thinking about porting their game to the Switch and wanted to confirm it. But he's like, yeah, they're going to go along with this, even though it's a sort of a smaller game. And so far, they're going to. I think I think the indie support is going to be very good on the Switch as well, and, and all signs are leading it to be pretty yeah, good it, there wasn't too. Wasn't so. that a, a secret bastion of success for the PlayStation Vita? Was the smaller games? Sure, sure. Yeah. So, so I mean, like I said, I think that I think the story of the Switch is going to be told next year. Uh, in terms of whether or not it's going to last. But obviously, so far, they could not have got off to a better start. I mean, basically, you have two games that are floating the system, and then you're going to have Splatoon 2 come out, and that's going to do well for them. And then once you get to the fall, and once you get to, obviously, once you get to June, they're going to probably announce a couple of things as yeah, well. Yeah, I actually so. wonder if uh, Legend of Zelda was maybe held back by the fact that it was also... Oh, <laughs> come on, Ben. Of course it was. Well, no, no, no not, <laughs> not by the release date, but graphically, because it's, it's also on the Wii U, right? Oh, sure. Um, right, so yeah. the, I, I wonder if the capabilities of the Switch have not really been fully utilized by the games yet. Because that's like the standout game, and uh, it doesn't really look a whole lot different than Wind Waker did many years ago. So I'm wondering I'm wondering what the power ceiling of the Switch actually is. I don't think we've quite seen it. Well, like any when any console comes out, if you go back to the NES, you look at NES games from 85 versus 91, 92, and it's almost a different system. You yeah. know, so, so you, yeah, I, I, would, I definitely see your point, because they, they push back the release uh, of the you know the Wii U and obviously the, the the Switch is basically a port of that where they're like okay right. we need so a- it's basically a Wii U game on the Switch r- sure. versus a native Switch game and what and for what I've seen there's there's more uh, slowdown in certain parts of the game on the Switch versus the Wii U uh, from reports I've seen oh yeah like, oh, like the digital foundry stuff yeah that was weird. So I mean that leads you to believe that yeah we we didn't really optimize this for the switch where we probably could have if it was a switch title to begin with. I mean that could also be troubling from a power standpoint. Like they said that when it was docked, it actually had worse performance. So it could be that you know when when they're like okay we're going to bump the resolution from 720, which is the screen, to 1080, which is when it's docked, and if that causes the game to stutter, that means that the system's kind of having trouble at 1080, which. Sounds kind of dumb, but if you think about like most Xbox One games do not render at 1080; they render at like mm-hmm. 900 or something. So if you sure. think, if Xbox One is having trouble rendering at 1080, the weaker Switch might as well. I mean, I think that's like the joke I saw someone mention about the PlayStation 4 Pro. It's like the 4K PlayStation 4 Pro will now make 1080p gaming a reality. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's I, like everyone wants 4K, but we haven't gotten 1080p right yet. Yeah, it's all marketing at the end of the day, right? People are going to be running out to buy these 4K uh, TVs. The, the, the human eye won't be able to tell the difference. You know, there's that scale of when the human eye can actually tell the difference based upon your screen size yes. at different resolutions, and it's it's all marketing. And that's why when people were originally complaining, oh, the the Switch is only a 720p tablet. It's like, could you really tell? Like, really, you're going to really be able to tell if it's 720p there's on a that little of, tablet? Uh, there's a lot of movie theaters that only project a 2K. And <laughs> so, yeah, yeah people I, get their man- people get their magnifying glass and run up to the screen and like really dissect it. I mean, I, it's, I have, it's, it's I have a 4K TV. Actually, I have two of them because I have one in my brick room at work too. And 
I have one. I still think it's a gimmick. It's just, you know, oh, how do we sell more TVs? It's absolutely a gimmick. <laughs> and, and plus, people don't realize where it's like most television broadcast is not even in 1080p. It's still 1080i, you know, if you want to get into exactly. that conversation. So there's not the bandwidth yet to, de- to, to deliver 1080p, and you're going to be worried about delivering 4K uh, cable stations anytime soon. Or if you, you have know? a 4K Netflix stream, it's compressed up the yin-yang, so you're losing a lot of the detail. Absolutely, and, and you don't think that uh, your your local internet provider is going to throttle the hell out of a 4K Netflix? You know what I mean? <laughs> what is, what what is it already? Where like the the amount of traffic on the internet is like how, what percentage is Netflix only like fifteen twenty percent or something oh, ridiculous? No, no. It's it's more than that. Like and in, in the evenings, it's something like sixty percent. Sure, it's insane. So, so you think all of a sudden all the local cha- all the local internet companies are going to be okay with like tripling the amount of bandwidth coming in? You know, or <laughs> uh, no, that's not how the world works. So, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a it's a four it's a four K stream, but it's got so much compression that the bandwidth is the same as a 1080p stream. I'm sure that's what they do. <laughs> yeah, sure. Or, or you're gonna. I, I, like, com- I don't. I don't watch television anymore. Everything I watch is streaming. And I think I was watching. I think it was Black Sales or something. And uh, there's like night scenes and like like the black the black gradients in the background look like dog shit. <laughs> like the characters' faces look good, but like the what do they call it? Cru- the blacks are crushed. You know, like you can't you can't see the levels, and it's it. It's like, wow, this is compressed garbage. Just like when we went from CDs to MP3s. It's like, well, here's your crappy compressed music, but it's more convenient. Yeah, sure. You don't realize that there is a difference between 128 and 320. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, but you obviously need a sound system to really tell the difference. But for TV, yeah, once you get into those uh, 50 to 60 inches, the compression, you're going to see it a lot you know, more readily. You know, yeah, people talk about Blu-rays being pointless, but I would argue that a 1080p Blu-ray looks better than a 4K stream. That's a good point, and it goes back to my infrastructure and internet uh, uh, argument before mm-hmm. <laughs> in developing nations. Right. Well, ev- even in our country, I mean, like South Korea, I know places like that have a like, blazing fast internet, but America's bigger. The wires have to go further, and like, yeah, if, if it's like if it's like if I'm in a, living in the suburban area, and on Saturday night, if everyone and their dog is streaming Netflix, it's like there's only so much bandwidth, and they're gonna yeah, they have to like cut it down and blur it up and have the gradients look like shit <laughs> yeah because then because then even like it, it'll take like 20 minutes to load it on your on your screen or then if even you're browsing the internet it might seem a little bit slower i mean it happens to me sometimes i'm like why is my internet a little bit slower oh it's saturday night at 7 30 at night so everyone's watching netflix oh yeah that's the yeah. first thing i'm thinking it's, it's kind of it's kind of like the, the solar power um like they have that in germany like they have heavily subsidized solar power so during the day there's all sorts of solar power that's being generated, but that at night they have to use the nuclear reactors because there's no sun. So mm-hmm. it's kind of the problem of like, yeah, you have peak power consumption or peak data consumption, and it's all cereal. It's streams, so it's not like growing a bunch of corn and then putting it in a silo. It's like you can't really store bandwidth and use it later. It's always you know immediate, and it kind of makes it a problem. We're going to solve the energy crisis the next time we speak on, on the Not So Common podcast, Ben. What, nice. what do you have? What do you have coming up in the future? Anything you want to promote? Uh, well, we're still doing the Ben Heck show uh, we're every week. To- uh, yes, we're trying to maybe branch it out into some new content, like having uh, – I know Felix is working on a Linux uh, section. Karen is working on a MakerBench. So there will probably be some new new content and side channels coming for the Ben Heck Show in the future. Uh, we still have the BenHeck.com podcast, which is at BenHeck.com. You can also check out and read about the Ben Heck Show on Element14.com forward slash TVHS. And I also have uh, – I'm working on a new pinball machine, which will probably be announced, oh, I don't know, probably this coming winter. And I'm also working on two movies, but that's a little further down the road. 
And you also have your book, Hacking Video Game Consoles. That's available on Amazon and digital and paperback. And look out for Ben Heck's Let's Play Twitch show starting up soon. Oh, wait, no. Are you doing that? No. <laughs> uh, no, no. Is, is Twitch, is that the new thing to do? Do you do that? That's a new thing with the kids that I hear is hot. That's, that's <laughs> like the... That's like the new, uh, what, like AOL Instant Messenger. It's a new latest craze. Do you, do you ever feel like one more, <laughs> one more comment about YouTube? Do you ever feel like, like YouTube is getting like younger and younger, and like older people are going to get phased out? <laughs> we we are dinosaurs yeah. when it comes to YouTube. But the, but the, but the other secret is is that Twitch has is not phased out YouTube, but Twitch has taken the youngest market there is. You know, kids that are ten, preteens, teenagers, watching, so, watching Minecraft. <laughs> Uh, well, it's just watching everything now. So some YouTubers have decided to go over to Twitch. Uh, but Twitch, though, still is dominated by, obviously, live streams and not content pre-recorded. So right. it will never supplant YouTube, but it might take a good chunk uh, out of their market share for sure. Um, you know, it's two different things, obviously, two different entities. But there's a Twitch audience for a certain type of content versus YouTube. Cool. And with that, uh, thanks a lot, Ben, for joining me. Enjoy whatever matinee you're going to go to, complaining about how expensive oh, it is. Movie well, I, I, ju- I just checked. A 4.15 showing now counts as an evening showing. They can jack the price more. There you go. <sighs> yep. <laughs> Join me next time as Ben and I yell at clouds loudly. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Ben for speaking to me this week. Check him out on YouTube and on Twitter at Ben Heck. If you enjoyed the Not-So-Common Podcast, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, or whatever you use to listen to them. You can rate the podcast and leave a comment to help give it a boost, and feel free to spread the word via social media. Finally, if you want to help directly support the Not-So-Common Podcast, you can check out patreon.com slash Thanks for listening.